Welcome to Graduate Compass, the podcast for graduates who haven't quite figured out what their next step is going to be. Cornelius, you're very welcome to Graduate Compass. Thank you so much for being here all the way from Germany. I really appreciate it. This is the first German guest we've had on the show. Can you start off by telling us what you originally went to study as a degree and what you're doing now? Yeah, hi, Kian. Uh, thank you. This is an honor and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I, I studied physics um, in the beginning. When I started studying it, I had the idea in mind to become a science journalist. So I wanted to study something um, yeah, scientific. And as I liked physics very much, I just started it and went with it. And yeah, I kind of liked it. And so I did uh, my bachelor's and my master's in physics. And my, my physics master's was already oriented towards the medical application of physics or the biological application of physics. And so I found myself in the position to think about going into this medical direction. And so I did a second master's in neuroscience in your information processing. And so now I'm doing my PhD in a virtual reality lab in a psychiatric hospital that also does um, psychological and psychotherapeutic research. And they are using virtual reality for that. And I'm basically running the, the R lab as the technical, uh, yeah, the technical support for all the groups and doing my own PhD thesis. So the, the, there's a big transition there from, from going from physics into kind of neuroscience to, to uh, you know, having a medical application and virtual reality. Like, let, let's start from the start. So when, when you went in and you decided to do physics, did you have that kind of end goal in mind that you would end up there? Or was it a very kind of open uh, approach to to what you wanted to do in physics? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question because um, before I decided what I wanted to do, um, I had the idea to do medical, uh, to do a medical degree, and then I decided for physics to have this openness, so to not decide yet what exactly to do. So I wanted to do something that, for example, could lead me into journalism or other, yeah, other applications. So actually, physics was the way for me to to keep several doors open, and you could say the fascination for this medical realm then just caught me uh, during time. And so I, I just used physics as the entrance then into that realm, which I had considered after school uh, anyhow. So yeah, so I, I can kind of combine interests now. And actually I'm quite glad how, how it worked out. So now I can combine both, both parts. And yeah, it's really interesting and also fascinating when you are not, I, I mean, in both fields, I'm not, the usual special expert that you would expect there. So I'm not a typical physicist, I'm not a typical psychologist or um, medical doctor, but this position is also really nice often because you have a different view angle on, on things and you can work in an interdisciplinary team. And I really enjoy that. And when you kind of finished your physics degree, when you went into that master's, were you still kind of like looking for that openness kind of trying to figure things out or did you have different ideas that you were maybe exploring at the time? I think it's this openness was was still a main factor. Um, I think I also knew that I really wanted to, to do this neuroscience. So in that respect, I was more certain about what I wanted to do. Um, so I really knew that neuroscience was something that really caught my interest and 
this combination of mathematical methods and biological and medical application and biological and medical fields of study. Um, this was really fascinating to me. And so I was, I was more secure when I chose this then because I knew I really want to do this. Um, with respect to the jobs opportunities, I knew it's not bad afterwards. So, I, but yeah, I think you're right. I, I also like that I didn't know yet what kind of job I would get. That this was still not decided. Then. And and when you you know made the transition into kind of neuroscience, was that an intimidating transition for you, or did like how, how did you kind of cope with it? I think. No, no, it was not intimidating. So um, if you, you have done physics and uh, talk to other people about it, they often think you are really clever mathematically. And of course, you have you have had a, a thorough mathematical education. Um, so from from that point of view, I wasn't intimidated um, for me and for many other physicists who also did this neuroscience masters. It was rather difficult to cope with the amount of um, things you had to learn by heart. Um, in this biological field. So this was rather the problem. So this was a bit intimidating, just the amount of stuff to study, because in physics, it's, it's, it's you also have to study, obviously, but there you rather learn how to calculate and how to use the formulas. And it's also really tough and really difficult. It's not that exhausting. It's interesting then, because it's, it's almost two very distinct skills. There's, there's you know, the, the way of thinking, which what physics sounds like you know it's a way to approach a problem and how do, how do you approach it and this kind of vast amount of knowledge you need for neuroscience and it sounds like you're, you're kind of combining both of those then in this PhD program which we will talk about a bit more in a moment but I'm interested to know how did the PhD come about because virtual reality and you know kind of helping people heal through virtual reality is not something I ever thought of, but obviously people like yourself who are much smarter and much much more far-seeing um, are, are trying to figure these things out. How, how did it even come about in the first place? Yeah, the funny thing is it also came came by accident to me. Um, I, I actually wanted to do pain research. So when I did my master's and realized that I really, I, I was really fascinated by the somatosensation, so by the perception of the body and um, all of these different kind of kinds of senses. So we have a lot of different senses for our body and especially fascinating, yeah, in a, in a scientific way, but also in a personal way, I, I found the experience of pain. And so I just looked out for opportunities to have a PhD project in this realm of pain and embodiment and uh, and then I found this position where they had an, they offered a project for pain research using virtual reality and so I was open to that and I just yeah I, I just went to, to the interview and, and thought yeah this is a really interesting project and really yeah it's really combining my technical education and my interests in the medical and uh, psychological application. And so I went for it, basically. So I would also say that the, the justification for using VR in therapy also became afterwards. So when I started, I just I just trusted the guys who, who offered the job that, well, <laughs> it would make sense. And I kind of figured the justification afterwards. And, and what was that kind of like the, the first, you know, um... PhD students often talk about the kind of roller coaster ride of emotions that they go through. Well, there's times where they love what they're doing, and there's times that it's very difficult, and, and vice versa. Um, what was your journey like? What's it been like so far? To me, I, I think the the first year was really hard to me 
because what I had underestimated was that the laboratory where I went wasn't set up yet, and it was um, it was a really nice project. And this um, clinic they had started building it, but there was not that much of technical um, expertise there. And basically, I ended up doing the all the piloting and all the turning on the machines, you could say. And I just underestimated that. I underestimated that it, that it took a lot of work to then set up this whole environment and to get to use it. And so this was, uh, I would say, the, the beginning of the roller coaster was rather a way down. And then when I, so in, in the beginning, I, I set up the technical details and got into the literature. And then I kind of caught fire. I also went deeper into my own topic. Of course, like all PhD students say it's it, it has been a roller coaster since then, but I think the the first year was the the deepest down it got, and then afterwards it, it was fine. On average, it was just fine, and it's really interesting. Uh, the work itself is really interesting. You just have to kind of deal with with the limitations or with the conditions and make the best of it. But you can make the best of it. I'm going to ask you about your your work your work in a second about what the kind of day to day looks like. But before I do, I'm just wondering did the, did the hard start uh, set you up in a good way because it made you it sounds like it made you learn skills that maybe you wouldn't have had to learn in other circumstances. Do you think those have kind of stood you for the rest of the project so far? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good description because um, I think in the beginning then I realized that the the good path is via pragmatic decisions and not trying to to be idealistic in in every aspect but yeah just do what is possible and find a way around and uh, find solutions that may not be that beautiful but still work and i think this is a skill that i, I really want to keep and that is helping me a lot now as well because the thing is i or i realized that in in this environment this was a really great idea that they built this lab and also my, my PhD project was a really great idea and you could not foresee the technical difficulties from the therapeutic perspective so you don't you don't think about I have this technology what is possible with it but rather the other way around so you want to achieve a goal you know you want to do um, embodiment research or pain research and you kind of have the idea VR will work with that and then you just find solutions and i think many of the original ideas didn't work out but on the way we found other nice ideas and other nice research projects so i think this pragmatism is what i really took from the time as a positive thing yeah. although it must have been very difficult to go through that period it does sound like it was a real challenge um that, that it was also an opportunity to learn and that that kind of skill set must have been really really interesting to kind of kind of pick up as you went along I don't know how much you can talk about your project. Like, is, is it something that you're you're happy to chat about? And and if so, can you give us a bit of a rundown of, of, of what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I, I can talk a bit about it. Um, it's so my my own research project is about using virtual reality in chronic back pain, and we do this by uh, using by creating personalized avatars of our patients, if you if you want, and so. To be clear, they don't come for us uh, to us for treatment. They are rather idealistic volunteers who just want to help us with our research. So really appreciate them doing this because they, it's a lot of work for them. Um, 
and although they enjoy it, it's still, yeah, it's still a bit exhausting. Um, so they, they come to us and we do personalized avatars of them or give them another uh, avatar that is not their own. And they watch these avatars uh, perform everyday movements and then are asked to imitate these movements. So it's everyday movements that everyone knows. So yeah, they do these everyday movements and our idea is that this might help them to do these everyday movements in their everyday lives more often again. So the idea is to treat not the pain itself, but rather the fear of specific movements that then leads to an avoidance of these movements and might contribute to the perseverance of this pain. And the idea is to kind of unlearn this fear of these movements by watching yourself or another person do these movements. And when we do that, we do a lot of motion capture and do video recordings and a lot of questionnaires, of course, or there's a lot of technical stuff going on, but this is the main idea, you could say. It, it sounds fascinating. And I, I, I almost said that I think I can get my head around that. And then I realized how stupid a question, a statement that was, because I obviously have, this is, you know, a, a very uh, light introduction to compared to the actual technical stuff that's going on behind the scenes to get something of this going. But, so it, it, are we are you basically saying that like when 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 people um have pain that they're trying to avoid some of that avoidance is unnecessary and it's it's out of fear and that it, that that is what you're trying to solve rather than the pain itself am i am i understanding that correctly um roughly uh or although i wouldn't uh, say that normatively because um i mean that they want to avoid it is totally natural. Pain as a neurosignal actually tells your body, uh, stop doing that, whatever you're doing, just stop doing it. Um, the problem is just that when pain becomes chronic, then it might be better to sometimes still do things, although you have pain doing them, because otherwise there might be this vicious circle of less and less activity, you're enjoying your everyday life less and less, and this increases pain then. So I wouldn't say it's unnecessary for them to, to avoid these movements because obviously it will relieve the pain. It's rather you're weighing the short-term and the long-term effects. And for the long-term effects, it would be better if you still do things, although you are in pain sometimes. So for, for this reason, we will never recruit persons who have acute injuries, for example, or who have acute inflammation of, of the back or of the spine, because pain as an acute signal is always right. So um, if you have acute pain and it tells you stop doing whatever you're doing, it is right. I mean, this is its evolutionary reason. In chronic pain, it might be different. That, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That's, and, and, and in terms of like putting a project like that together, like I would imagine there must be so many different aspects to it because you're going to have like kind of the the ethical side of it involved and you've already kind of touched on that where you said you know we're not going to recruit people who've, who've got acute pain it's, it's got to be that kind of chronic pain you know i'm assuming you're going to have like different kind of doctors or maybe surgeons different specialists involved as well if not the, the initial point or did that happen or was that something that you guys have the training to be able to kind of make that distinction of who needs what or who can do what at different stages um, we are really cautious in, in claiming that because in our project, we, we are not medical doctors. And um, so we do this with a pre-screening. So um, every, every person, so usually chronic pain patients are really well informed about their own 
history of illness and uh, of their own pain. And so if there's any hint of the pain or being of, of an origin that would need, for example, a neurological treatment, we won't include them. And we always make it really clear to them that this is not a therapy because we don't know whether it works at all. Um, and yeah, you would be surprised if you saw how many just how many people who live their daily lives are in back pain. So they are not patients in the classical sense. So many of them are not in, pre in treatment. They just endure the pain for years now. Um, so it's not. I would have expected this to be more difficult, This that you had to do some differential diagnosis in the beginning and would need a medical doctor in the beginning. But in the recruitment, how we do it, it's not necessary, actually, because we are in close contact with the participants themselves and we are quite open to them what this is all about. And in that respect, it, it was more easy than I had expected. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it sounds, it sounds fascinating. It sounds genuinely fascinating. I'm, I'm curious what the day-to-day -day of your job would look like now. I know I said I was going to ask this a, a few minutes ago and I kind of got a bit sidetracked. But, but what, what, uh, like, what, when you go in on like a day, or I know at the moment you're probably working from home with COVID, what, what, is it, what does your average day look like? So it's, it's really diverse, I would say. Um, so I'm also the technical head of the lab. So I'm also doing uh, experimental setups for other people. So let's start with my study. So when I have a when I have a workday on my study, make a few calls to participants, for example, organize the, the meetings when, when they come to our lab and uh, when they do their, their training sessions, as we call them. And these personalized avatars, for example, I design them by hand using CGI software. Um, so this takes a lot of time because it's not an automated process, but I really do 3D scans of the participants and then kind of create this avatar. And this is a part of it. Um, then a huge part is programming. So I, I use the programming language Python to code. I, as a physicist, I really like that you can really code line by line what is going to happen in this experiment. And then you also do programming when you analyze the data, for which we use R, uh, which is widely used in psychology. So I think this takes a lot of <laughs> a whole bunch of, of my working day. And yeah, the rest is um, coordination meetings with other scientists on their virtual reality projects. So in this case, it's quite a different task because I have to find out experiments. So they come with really nice ideas from a psychiatric or a psychological point of view. And then together we try to we try to write a script for the VR session, you could say. So it's like in a theater session. Um, so you need a theater script where you have written down line by line what is going to happen in this VR experiment. So the person enters the virtual reality, puts on the HMD, the head mounted display, or enters the cave, which we also use, which is based, uh, which is using canvases, and is really detailed. And you have to be really, really careful in designing this experiment. And once we have this, I can kind of translate this pseudo script, as we call it, into the actual Python programming language. And then I can design the actual experiment. And also together with the, with my colleagues, try to find out how we actually can create this 3D content, you always need, for example, avatars or virtual environments, and none of us is actually educated to do this. So we 
kind of do it on a low level, but still, I think we're doing fine. And then we, of course, we have to pilot these experiments then on ourselves and uh, on colleagues and later on friends. And in the end, then on um, volunteers that we recruit from the public. So yeah, it's a, it's a really diverse job. My, my initial reaction to that, which I know is, is not is not going to be the most in-depth question ever asked, is the, I just think the hours must be crazy because the, the idea of doing that in a kind of normal nine to five, nine to six must be incredibly difficult. So is it like, I assume you're, you're putting kind of long, long nights and long hours trying, especially when it comes to coding and trying to like get things to work. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. And actually it's some, something I also took from this first rough year that I realized if things are really hard, you can't work too much on them, especially if problems are hard to solve, at least in my case, one major resource is motivation. And actually, I, I can only speak for myself. When I do a lot of work for months, I kind of lose motivation in it. So what you describe happens from time to time. So there sometimes so the last the last two months were, were really rough. And then I, I'm doing a lot of over hours. Um, but I would say it's not like that all the time. And I know this is different uh, for other PhD students who I would say are doing over, who are overworking all the time. Um, but I try to avoid it because I realize that you lose, you lose creativity if you don't, if you don't enjoy what you're doing. And so I try to confine this to specific phases where, where you prepare an experiment like you described. So you want to get this running now and you want to invite the, the participants and then you put in the hours and then you, you kind of, it's a matter of pride that it should look nicely and then you try to improve that. But I don't do it all the time. It's a, it's a bit like, yeah, you there's times where you put in the effort and there's times where you want to harvest all, also. And yeah. So I try to enjoy these times as well. I love that. That's a really nice way of putting it. And I'm and speaking of kind of like harvesting, kind of there's there's your own kind of career path at the moment. You've you've had a you know uh, you approached it kind of a very initially very open minded. You kind of didn't know where you wanted to go down, and they kind of let you you let that kind of um, interest develop naturally. And it sounds like you kind of found your niche and you, you know, an area to focus on, which you're doing great work and, and hopefully it'll be something that'll help, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people across the world who, who kind of have these kind of issues. And I'm just, just wondering from your own experience of, of like what you've learned along the way, what advice you would have for anyone who's listening right now who is trying to figure out their own career path, regardless of what stage they're at. Mm. Um. I think when I when I think about it, um, so my, my career path is quite unusual, but then if I look at my colleagues, it's not that unusual in being unusual. Um, so there there is physicists and there's biologists and there's people from, from different fields. Um, and this is also what I like about, about this job, that you don't have a monotonous social environment. Um, and I think what, what took me a bit of time to figure out is to find the balance between um, using what you've learned already and kind of what you said, kind of harvesting the, the, the fruits of your efforts and learning new stuff and wanting to explore new areas. So I, I use a metaphor from machine learning where you have in, in some algorithms when you train them, you have to 
set up the parameters for exploitation on the one hand, so getting the uh, so getting the fruits of what you've learned already, so getting the benefits of what you have learned already. So this would be the exploitation on the one hand and exploring potentially even better paths with the risk of losing some benefit on the way because it might not be the, the correct path. And so it's in machine learning, it's really it's really hard to find, or sometimes it can be really hard to find the correct balance between these both factors. And I think it's a nice metaphor for also finding your path in, in, in the job world, um, because I would really recommend to explore because you don't know whether you will find a really nice thing on the, yeah, on the next edge. But at the same time, don't forget exploiting what you already have. And I think this took me, so I, I'm more the explorer type, I would say. Um, and now I realize that this exploiting is also, is also important. And I think now I have a good balance. And if you think of both aspects, then you will also have a quite unique skill set after your after you have finished your your education, because the thing is not that you have to be the best in a field, but that you have to be special in your skill set. And this you you can easily easily find when you follow your explorative needs, but also um, yeah don't don't forget your past. And don't forget to cash in on your past, you could say. Cornelius, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs>that's it from today's show before we say goodbye just to remind you that if you want to help the show grow uh, you can always follow us on facebook twitter or tiktok uh, or if you want to share an episode with a friend someone who maybe might need a bit of help with their career and is looking for, for an alternative idea or two then uh, that would also be a massive help um, thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed the show i'm kino sullivan and i'll speak to you soon Thank you for listening to this episode of Graduate Compass. Remember, if there is a degree subject or specific industry you would like to be featured on any future episodes, then we would love to hear from you and know what you are trying to find out. Our email is info at graduatecompass.ie.